This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. So as Professor Apajudari mentioned, my name is Amara Chaudhry Kravis. I am an adjunct this semester with the Center on Arab and Islamic Studies. The title of my topic today is, Is Brown the New Black? Are American Muslims Racially Profiled? As she also mentioned, I am currently a practicing attorney. I served as the legal director for the Council on American Islamic Relations here at their local office in Philadelphia for about two and a half years. And actually, just between January 31st and February 1, I stepped into a new part-time of council role to accommodate my speaking engagements and my research and scholarly interests. Now, what I'm going to be talking to you about today is actually, it relates to an article which I recently published of a similar name titled, Is Brown the New Black? American Muslims Inherent Propensity for Violence and America's Racial History. What I'm holding up now is the Washington Lee Journal of Civil Rights and Social Justice, which is a scholarly publication for law students and professors. However, the reason I brought my laptop is that a more user-friendly excerpt of this article has been posted online. And I hope to give you guys the web page for, for that shortly. So my laptop is here. I don't know why I'm not projecting. Okay. So very shortly, you will have the, the link for that, that excerpt from the article. Now, my full article contains those portions of my professional background which are most relevant to my research on my article. And so I'm going to largely omit those details here, except to point out that though I have practiced, um, that we're going to ignore, it's like the, the Wizard of Oz, ignore the man behind the curtain and pay attention to, to me. Um, but I, I was going to say, even though I've been practicing in the field called, okay, so that is projecting, awesome. Let's see. Ta-da. Okay, so this is the Race, Racism in the Law blog run by the University of Dayton Law School. And you will see there is an excerpt from my article there. I'm going to leave that up. You're welcome to note the site for later reference. So, as I was saying, for the past five years I have been working as a civil rights attorney. However, what I do want to point out to you in this room, the bulk of my career has taken place within the criminal justice field. And that's how I became interested in the topic of racial profiling. So even before practicing law, I was fairly confident I understood what the term racial profiling meant. After all, I had grown up in the 80s in Ronald Reagan's war on drugs. As a matter of fact, that was my experience from say kindergarten to 12th grade. It was that decade. Then I went to college and law school in the 1990s and I read all about the driving while black cases, which I was fairly certain would be overturned before I began practicing law in 2001. They haven't been. Um, however, since the horrific attacks on the United States, which occurred on September 11, 2001, the cultural understanding of racial profiling has changed. As one New York Times article noted in October of 2001, even the language of racial grievance has shifted. Overnight, the cries about driving while black have become flying while brown, 
a phrase referring to reports of Muslim Americans being asked to get off planes. As a matter of fact, there is evidence to suggest that the applicability of the term racial profiling to contemporary American Muslim experience is universally accepted. Not only is the phrase used in the popular media, such as the New York Times article I just referenced, civil rights organizations use the term very matter-of-fact. Muslim civil rights organizations, such as the one which employs me, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, so strongly identify with the term racial profiling that they broadly commit to a wide array of projects dealing with the issues of racial profiling as applied both to the American Muslim community and to the community external to the American Muslim community. Witness, for example, cares lobbying in support of the most recent incarnation of the End Racial Profiling Act, an act which has applicability beyond the American Muslim community. Also, CARE has sought to amend a federal policy referred to as the guidance regarding the use of race by federal law enforcement agencies. Muslim civil rights organizations are not alone in using the term racial profiling to apply to the American Muslim community. For example, general population civil rights groups, such as the American Civil Liberties Union, expressly define racial profiling as including contemporary American Muslim experience and specifically referencing 9-11. Even the United States government seems to partially recognize the applicability of the term racial profiling to American Muslims and the designation of the American Muslim community as a race within the criminal justice context. For example, the guidance regarding the use of race by federal law enforcement agencies has a provision where it indicates that race cannot be used as a decision-making factor in what they call traditional law enforcement activities, but the very next paragraph down says that race and ethnicity can be used in both national security matters and in border integrity investigations. So we have even the federal government saying that Muslims are a race within the confines of the criminal justice system. However, even though race cannot be used in routine law enforcement, it can be used as applied to our community and others. However, despite the seeming congruence of these acknowledgments, federal courts have pointed out one critical flaw. I'm wondering if you guys can guess what that is. In 2011, in an employment discrimination case before the United States District Court sitting in Philadelphia, a federal judge made an announcement which should shake our presumptions about the application of the term racial profiling to contemporary American Muslim experience. Can you guess what the court said? Quite simply, the court said this, Muslim is not a race within the definition of federal civil rights law. Now, that simple assertion is likely one with which we would all intellectually agree. Most of us understand Muslim identity as being a religious identity, not a racial term. But the practical effect of that announcement in the context of racial profiling discourse is one which we and others too often and too quickly ignore. You see, an individual cannot be racially profiled unless the so-called profiling is predicated upon a racial identity. And that is what brings us here today. 
to the extent that American Muslim identity has become criminalized, and I will define that term later, following the September 11th attacks on the United States, has this criminalization process occurred because of a racial animus or because of another factor? To answer this question, I will begin by defining the terms which I will use throughout my presentation. I will then briefly present evidence that American Muslim identity has in fact been criminalized. Next, I will distinguish between racial profiling and criminalization based upon other factors. I will then demonstrate how American Muslim identity has been racialized in America's legal history. Finally, I will bring my analysis back to the present, pointing out a contemporary example of the conflation of Muslim identity and race. And I will end with case examples from my own experience, which demonstrate the importance of clarity on this issue. So I'm going to begin by defining my terms. I've used several so far already, beginning with the term American Muslims. When I refer to American Muslims, I am talking about anyone who either self-identifies as Muslim or is perceived as Muslim by others, whether based upon their internal religious beliefs, their externally expressed religious beliefs, or their externally evident behaviors that communicate a set of religious beliefs. When I refer to the criminalization of Muslims, I am talking about the use of Muslim identity as an ex-ante factor, that is a before-the-fact factor, for predicting criminality, criminal behavior, and or a propensity of violence. Okay, so I want to be really clear about that. I'm talking about the use of race or ethnicity, in particular Muslim identity, for predicting acts of criminality, criminal acts or acts of violence. I am not talking about the ex post facto, the after the fact use of race. For example, I was robbed today, the gentleman who robbed me was 5 foot 10, 185 pounds, and a Muslim American with a, a beard. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the before the fact. I see you, you have an appearance, I believe that you will engage in criminal behavior or another act of violence. When I speak about racialization, I'm talking about the extent to which Muslim identity has been sociologically construed throughout America's legal history as a racial identity. So here again, I want to clarify concepts. When Muslim identity has been racialized, that means as though Muslim identity is perceived as something which is inborn, immutable, and unalterable. It is part of one's own being. When, racial, when Muslim identity excuse me, has not been racialized, it is seen as a set of beliefs or practices which can be altered by the individual and which the individual chooses, therefore a mutable characteristic. So those are the, the terms as applied today. Now I'm going to briefly touch upon what I call the criminalization of American Muslim identity. And I'm going to assert something which I believe is an almost indisputable fact in 2014. That is that American Muslim identity has been criminalized post 9-11. In other words, 
we are associated, actually we are socially construed as having a collective group identity and persons who are associated with that collective group identity are presumed to have an inherent inclination towards violent behavior. That's what I'm talking about. Where are the examples that we see this? We see both the FBI as well as local law enforcement like the NYPD monitoring our nation's mosques. We have seen federal prosecutors targeting Islamic religious and civic organizations, including Islamic charities. We also note, I just referenced the NYPD, that surveillance of the American Muslim community is not unique to the federal government. And when I reference the NYPD and its surveillance of mosques, I want to add that that same municipal law enforcement organization has also been tracking the activities of Muslim student associations from Philadelphia to Connecticut. We also see the criminalization of American Muslim identity at airports when DHS and TSA employees target people based upon what they call Muslim looking appearance or Muslim sounding names and they select these people out for secondary screenings based upon an unspoken presumption that American Muslims have an inherent propensity to engage in acts of violence against the United States or its citizens. We've also seen anti-Muslim trainings by various law enforcement agencies from local to state to federal and by the United States military. Okay, so that's just the brief laundry list that sets up my assertion that American Muslim identity has been criminalized. However, we are left with the question, has this criminalization process occurred because of race? Let's think about a few examples to analyze this out. For instance, I mentioned the monitoring of mosques. Can that fairly be described as racial profiling? An easy answer would say, no, not really. It appears to be targeting individuals, not solely because they identify or identified by others as Muslim, but because they're engaging in certain behaviors which are perceived as Muslim, particularly religious observance. So it appears to be policing based upon apparent religiosity. However, let's take another example. And I represented a, a man about a year or two ago who was crossing from the Canadian border into the United States where he lived. He came to the border crossing and the one question that Customs and Border Patrol asked him was, you, where are you from? He answered, Norristown, Pennsylvania. No, you know what I mean, where are you from? He responded again, more slowly and clearly, Norristown, Pennsylvania. Um, and of course, the agent was a little irritated by this. He said, okay, expletive. Tell me where you're really from. Where are you from originally? Pakistan, one word answer. He was told, okay, you come with me. He was eventually detained for 48 hours. He spent a significant portion of his time in handcuffs. Compare that to the mosque surveillance scenario. Doesn't this individual look like he was targeted for race more than the prior example? He was called out for questioning as an initial matter about his national origin purely because he displayed physiological characteristics that suggested to the officer that he came from a part of the world where people have an inherent propensity for violence. So now that we understand the difference between the 
the profiling based upon race and religion. Let me talk about America's history with the American Muslim community and the extent to which American Muslim identity has been racialized throughout American history. I'm going to begin with the case out of um, 1942 called In Ray Hassan. Actually, let me back up a little bit because I, I realize that we have a, a diverse audience and not everyone's background is in the law. Something I want everyone to be aware of is that the group of cases I'm about to discuss are popularly known as the racial prerequisite cases, and they actually refer to naturalization cases. The late part of the 18th century, much of the 19th century, and even the early part of the 20th century. The reason why from 1790 to 1952 there was a law in effect called the Naturalization Act which limited American citizenship to what was called free white persons. The act was later broadened in 1870 to include persons of African nativity and persons of African descent. And then again in 1940 to include uh, what was re referred to as races indigenous to the Western Hemisphere. So during this time period, anybody who wanted to be naturalized as a citizen of the United States, if they were coming from, say, the Middle East, Asia, or other parts of what we would refer to as the greater Middle East, they had to prove to a federal court that they were free white persons in order to be naturalized as citizens. Now, in this context, consider In Ray Hassan, which occurred in 1942. That case involved a Yemeni citizen who sought to assert that he was a free white person. He did not at any time argue that he was of African descent or African nativity. So he comes to court and he's aware of what the court would later refer to as his extremely dark complexion. So he, become, he comes in armed with documentation. The documentation is being used to establish the fact that despite his physical appearance, he is actually a remote descendant of Northern Europeans. That's what he's, he's seeking to establish. The court does not rule in Mr. Husson's favor. However, even though they note what they refer to as his extremely dark complexion, that is not the basis of their decision. And that's actually fairly notable because in racial jurisprudence, United States skin color was used to a large extent. Instead, the court says this, and I'm going to read the quote, so forgive me for um, losing eye contact with you. Apart from the dark skin of the Arabs, it is well known that they are part of the Mohammedan world and that a wide gulf separates their culture from that of the predominantly Christian peoples of Europe. That is the basis of the court's decision. And so I note this case for several reasons. And first, we see the court conflating Christian identity with American identity. That is point number one. Two, we see the court conflating Christian identity with white identity. And third, do you notice in this case, and I'm sorry I'm reading you just a quote and not the whole case, in that sentence, the court does not reference Mr. Husson's race. As a matter of fact, there is no explicit reference to Mr. Husson's race in the decision, despite the fact that the name Husson does suggest an Islamic ancestry. As we know, persons from the Middle East can have so-called Muslim-sounding names and be non-Muslim. 
Instead, Mr. Hassan was deemed non-white because he is associated with the Islamic faith in a part of the world which is a Muslim-majority part of the world. So that is what's interesting about In Ray Hassan. Other cases are more explicit. For example, in In Ray Ellis, which is a 1910 case out of Oregon, a Syrian immigrant was allowed to be naturalized as a U.S. citizen. Why? As the court explained, because he was reared a Catholic and is still of that faith. There again, we see Christian identities being the basis why a Middle Easterner is perceived as a free white person and therefore allowed to become part of American society. In Ex Parte Shahid, which is a 1913 case out of South Carolina, the court ruled against Mr. Shahid's petition for naturalization. Now, specifically, they ruled against Mr. Shahid because he was non-European. However, the court was troubled by this definition of free white persons. The court believed that religion should be a factor in determining whether someone is a free white person. And they explained that as such. By, they explained that by defining uh, or by limiting free white persons to Europeans, that a definition would exclude persons coming from the very cradle of the Jewish and Christian religions. So we see a federal court saying, you know, I won't make the racial designation based upon religion, but you know what, I really should. That's what's important in defining our culture as Americans. We also have a series of cases relating to the Armenians. As some people in this room may realize, Armenia was the, the first nation state to adopt Christianity as its, as its official state religion. And in the federal cases dealing with Armenian immigrants and their immigration petitions, we overwhelmingly see Armenians being designated as white simply because of their predominant religious faith. As a court noted in United States versus Cardozian in 1925 in the District of Origin, although the Armenian province is within the confines of the Turkish Empire, being in Asia Minor, the people thereof have always held themselves aloof from the Turks, the Kurds, and the allied peoples, principally, it might be said, on account of their religion. So there we have the court acknowledging this is Armenia. It's part of the greater Middle East. It's in Asia Minor. And the people are ethnically similar to other peoples from Muslim-majority lands. However, because they are Christian, they are seen as being more American, and specifically as free white persons. In another case involving Armenians out of Massachusetts in 1909, in Ray Halagian, a federal district court opined that race is not an easy working test of white color. In the warfare which has raged since the beginning of history about the Eastern Mediterranean between Europeans and Asiatics, the Armenians have generally been found on the European side. By reason of their Christianity, they generally range themselves against the Persian fire worshippers and against the Mohammedans. So there again, we see in quite strong language a federal court indicating that because Armenians are Christian, 
we're going to give them an exception to the general rule applicable to persons from the greater Middle East and designate them as both free white persons and also worthy of being welcomed into the larger American culture. Now I want to point out that this conflation of religion and race is not unique to the United States. Remember the case I started out with in Ray Husson? That case took place in 1942. Let's think about what was happening in the world in 1942. Remember that in a certain part of the word, world, excuse me, Jewish identity was often determined by ancestry. If you were born a Jew, you were a Jew, you could not convert your way out of it. And as noted by one scholar, anti-Semitism became racism when the belief took hold that Jews were intrinsically and organically evil rather than merely having false beliefs and wrong dispositions. In other words, religious bias predicated upon actual or perceived religious beliefs and practices is not racism. However, religious biases which rely upon a belief that persons belonging to a certain religious group are, as the scholar pointed out, intrinsically and organically evil, regardless of their religious beliefs or practices, is racism. And an individual cannot escape this bias by converting to another religion. So now I've spoken about this history, this conflation of racial and religious identities earlier in the nation's history, but the question becomes, how is this discourse relevant to today? The cases I cited range from the early part of the 20th century to 1942 at the latest. Surely, one would assume that by now, given the increasing numbers of Muslims and other persons from the greater Middle East immigrating into the United States, Americans understand now the distinction between Muslim as a religion and the various ethnicities that profess the Muslim faith, right? One would assume that. However, I'd like us to think about and to focus on some of the news media reactions to the, the Boston bombings earlier, um, sorry, last year, I shouldn't say earlier this year. Initially, following the reactions, a journalist named David Sirota published an article in Salon.com titled, Let's Hope the Boston Marathon Bomber is a White American. And the picture that went with this article was a picture of Timothy McVeigh, who is a convicted American terrorist, and Osama bin Laden. And what Sirota was arguing is, you know, let's hope that the bomber is not Muslim, because if the person or persons who bombed the city of Boston, taking many innocent lives in and affecting many others, then bias would be applied to, to all Muslims. However, the criticisms of Mr. Serrata's article focused upon the phrase white American and discussing white privilege and juxtaposing that to Muslim identity. So the criticism came out, basically said, don't you understand, you idiot Sirota? Muslim is a religion, white is a race. These are two different things, and why are you conflating the two? 
The criticism also accused David Sirota of playing the race card in an attempt to win over sympathies of the American general audience. However, another journalist, a man named Peter Beinhardt, came to the defense of David Sirota. And what he referenced was actually many of the cases I, I referred to earlier today. Ellis, Shahid, Halagian, Cardozian, Inray Hassan. And what he was demonstrating is that David Sirota in 2013, um, writing about the Boston bombing, understandably conflates religious identity with racial identity because American society has done so ever since the first waves of Muslim in immigrants entered American soil. What he did not point out was, as I referenced to you earlier, there seems to be a common contemporary agreement that the phrase racial profiling applies to American Muslims and that the association of American Muslims with acts of terrorism is one which is described in racial terms by American civil rights organizations, American Muslim civil rights organizations, and to some extent even the United States government. So I mentioned that I would end my remarks today with case examples which demonstrate the importance of clarity on this issue because We've seen now that the two terms that Muslim identity has been racialized throughout history. We see that it's happening today and that certain groups of individuals are labeling the practice as racial profiling. And yet we acknowledge that many skeptics point out they're rather obvious that Muslim is a religion and not a race, including the, the federal court I referenced earlier in Philadelphia in the Omar Abdullah versus Allegheny Valley case. So what do we do if we are advocating for someone or for a group of people who are being marginalized based upon Muslim identity? Well, I'm going to give you guys a, a few case examples. One I spoke about earlier, which was the gentleman who was crossing from Canada into the United States. He, he was singled out based upon the fact that he identified his ancestry as Pakistani. But even prior to that, simply because of the visual inspection of the Customs and Borders Border Patrol agent. Such a case where an individual is targeted based upon physiological characteristics seems rather textbook racial profiling. However, these cases are not always that simple. Let me give you an example of a, a case that I litigated during my public defender career many years ago. Ironically, the defendant was in fact Muslim, but that was not really part of the, the analysis at the time. My client was sitting on his, the front stoop of his house there in, in Norristown, Pennsylvania. It was the summer. I think some people were, were barbecuing, they were listening to music. Um, and he was sitting on his stoop having a, a smoke and a police officer was patrolling the area on foot and he eventually conducted a what's called a Terry stop, a stop and frisk on my client. Now in a criminal case 
one of the initial stages of trial is something called a suppression hearing, and you're trying to suppress any evidence which is the result of an illegal search or seizure. So I get up to argue that this search of my client, Mr. Bay, it took place for reasons other than the fact that the officer had a reasonable suspicion of criminality. Now, I never used the word race during my argument, but I very much wanted to hear the police officer assert just one, just one non-racial basis for stopping Mr. Bay. The police officer took the stand. He testified that he was suspicious of Mr. Bay for several reasons. One, he was in a high crime neighborhood. Two, he was in a neighborhood which had a reputation of having a high degree of violence towards law enforcement officers. And three, because Mr. Bay's dress featured baggy blue jeans, the waistbands of which were at his hips and he had no belt on. Now, this officer was testifying, and in my mind, I didn't have to mention race because the cop was doing it all over the place. High crime area, I would have concluded, was a proxy for a black neighborhood. It was being used as a proxy for race. A neighborhood reputed to have a high inf incidence of crime against law enforcement. Again, something which I thought was being used as a proxy for race, a, a black neighborhood. And then third, the way he described the manner of dress, the wearing baggy jeans around your hips with no belt on, uh, to me, signified a style of clothing worn predominantly by African Americans or associated with African Americans in this culture. He saw it as a non-racial basis that uh, baggy pants with no belt on around the hips are a convenient way to hide an unholstered weapon reminded me of a, a Jay-Z song where the cop says, are you car carrying a weapon on you, son? I know a lot of you are. It, just, it had that, that smell to me. So the cop's testifying. I'm cross-examining him. I hear race, race, race. The cop is saying non-racial, non-racial, non-racial. And the court eventually agreed with the, the cop. So can we see what the problem was during that discourse? I mentioned I didn't mention the word race because I didn't want to be suffering the same consequence these many years ago that David Sheroda eventually did. That when you mention race, you're accused of playing the race card. However, by not mentioning race, I realized something. Myself, the officer and the prosecution and the judge, we were all speaking a different language. I heard race when other people heard non-racial factors. I thought about this case example again. Uh, just a few weeks ago, on February 14th of this year, I filed a brief in an airport profiling case. The young man was a college student, much like many of you. He was flying from Philadelphia to California where he attended college, and he walked into Philadelphia International Airport with all of his course books, things he needed for, um, he would need for class, and those materials included Arabic-English flashcards. I know, has anybody heard of this case in the media? No? Okay. So he was stopped, detained, and searched because of those flashcards. He eventually spent four hours in detention, significant portion of time in handcuffs. The question that came to my mind then was, 
whether those Arabic English flashcards were being used as a proxy for race, a non-racial factor in which a court or law enforcement official could raise, could hang their hat, or were they legitimately a non-racial factor? Again, it wasn't so much that the student was believed to be Arab. He actually he has a name that I would have assumed is Arab, and yet he identifies as non-Arab and non-Muslim. Um, but he was, he was not stopped because he was believed to be Arab, but because he was engaged in so-called Arab activities or, or activities associated with Arab-American culture. But this time, in my brief to the court, I did not make the same mistake that I had earlier in Mr. Bay's case, and I referenced the occurrence of racial profiling. So this is what I wanted to bring home today. Initially, I began the question by saying, are American Muslims being racially profiled? I said that there is an assumption they are. There is a distinction between being profiled or targeted for criminal suspicion because of race and because of religion. And yet I gave a history showing that religion is part of many legal authorities' analysis of race or assignment of race. So what I would say is that when we think about racial profiling in the American Muslim community, I would assert that anybody who wants to advocate on behalf of American Muslims or even to discuss the topic from an intelligent article, use the term racial profiling only where appropriate. Understand the distinction between someone who is pulled aside because they're engaging in religious practices and someone who is pulled aside because their appearance or their name suggests a certain ancestry. And I'm going to leave with the example of the Umar Abdullah case out of Philadelphia. As I mentioned, this is a case in Philadelphia where the federal district court sitting in Philadelphia pointed out the obvious, um, that Muslim is not a race. Mr. Abdullah was making an employment discrimination case and specifically he said that while he was at work he wanted to pray at certain times and certain places the employer was not making reasonable accommodations for him and his argument to the court was look my my religious identity my ethnic identity my national origin they're all tied up in in one package it's hard to separate between them and the court said that could be true but we're going to throw out the, these race-based claims because there's no evidence of race. So what did Mr. Abdullah do wrong? One, he probably assigned the label race discrimination to something which wasn't. It does not appear as though he was pulled aside because of his name, his ethnicity, his background. And other, other plaintiffs are. Um, they're specifically referred to as, as terrorists or people are mocking their, their countries of origin. But he did something else wrong, too. He just boldly asserted Muslim is a race and he put it out there in a legal pleading. And what we need to realize when we're discussing the topic of racial profiling in the Muslim community is that not everybody perceives contemporary Muslim experience as um, being affected by race. And if you're going to make that assertion, you do have to back it up with some form of research, including some of the examples I mentioned here today. And actually, before I end, I'm going to um, point out a, a rather obvious example. I was having a lunch with a colleague of mine not too long ago, 
And as Professor Abidjadiri mentioned earlier, I work at the Council on American Islamic Relations. So I often represent people who have been identified by some law enforcement agency as being a, a threat to, to national security. So my colleague I was having lunch with works the opposite side of the aisle. He's more often than not labeling people as possible threats to national security. So we're eating lunch and I was talking about, I was, I was fairly new to this line of work. And I was talking about the racial profiling of American Muslims. And both my colleague and I come from a criminal background, so we, we understood racial profiling. And he, he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, of course we wouldn't target someone or suspect someone based upon their race. Then just sort of asked me incredulously, do you know, do you know how wrong that would be? And then as I was sort of thinking it over, getting ready to take my next bite and digest, he added, of course, I see nothing wrong with keeping a little bit closer eye on somebody based upon their beliefs or their practices. And I think that highlights the discord I'm discussing now, is that there are certain behaviors that are presumed to be taking place because of race, but not everybody agrees on that analysis. And we must remember that the distinction between religious discrimination and racial discrimination may at first appear superficial. If, for those of you who are familiar with discrimination laws, you realize that both forms of discrimination are illegal. As a matter of fact, they're, they're treated in very similar ways by the court. It's called the, the level of scrutiny, and they're both subject to strict scrutiny. So some would argue, why does it make a difference whether we label this as religious discrimination or race discrimination? However, the error in that question lies in the fact that it ignores a psychosocial reality of contemporary American culture. Americans simply view racial discrimination more hostily than any other forms of discrimination. We have a racial history that makes us particularly sensitive to racial discrimination. And that's why when people use the phrase racial profiling or race discrimination, they're accused of playing the race card. Therefore, once again, I want to end on the note that it may be taking place. I think there's a strong history that indicates that American Muslim identity has been racialized throughout history. It's continuing to be racialized. However, when making that assertion, it cannot be a simple assertion. It needs to be backed up by, by fact and by evidence. That's all I've got.